to Ezra. We turn this morning again. We're continuing our series of sermons from this history of God's saving work and the life of his church. This is our history. I've um, reminded you a couple times and will again. This is our history and its lessons are our lessons to be learned and to be woven into the very fabric of our own minds and hearts and lives as well. You remember that God has at this point brought back his people, a remnant of them, to Jerusalem, to Judah, from the captivity in Babylon. A small group, some 50,000 or so, has returned to their native soil, only to find and to be reminded of the fact that the temple is demolished and uh, the way of life there, but a distant memory now to their oldest numbers. But to now, having been restored to the land, what is their chief priority? Putting first things first, what will demand their attention from the very beginning? What is the most important thing? And answering the question from the example of these, our mothers and fathers in the faith, let us ask ourselves, what shall be of first importance to us? What is top priority for us? What do we put in the first place? What demands our hearts, our souls, minds, and strength as a people of God today above everything else and before everything else? Let's pray. Father, we ask you to speak to us now and to apply your word to our hearts, for there we live out of the motives and desires of our hearts. Conform them to your truth, Father, and our lives will follow. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezra chapter 3, we'll read all 13 verses. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first Day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak made a beginning 
together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel." And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Dr. John MacArthur tells the story in his book on worship on that topic, the story that he read in a newspaper an account of a christening party at uh, the home of a wealthy uh, Boston suburb family. The parents had opened their palatial home to friends and relatives who had come to celebrate the wonderful event, the christening of their baby that day. As the party was moving along and the people were having a wonderful time eating and drinking and celebrating and enjoying one another, somebody said, by the way, where's the baby? The heart of the mother jumped. She instantly ran from the room, rushed into the master bedroom where she had left the baby asleep in the middle of the massive bed. The baby was dead, smothered under the coats of the guests. And Dr. MacArthur muses on that story and wonders, along with a concerned remnant of American evangelicals today, whether that is not an accurate picture of how the Lord Jesus Christ is treated in his own church. We are busy supposedly celebrating him while he's smothered by the coats of the guests. He goes on to make this observation, MacArthur does. We have many activities and little worship. We're big on ministry and small on adoration. We are disastrously pragmatic. All we want to know about is what works. We want formulas and gimmicks. And somehow, in the process, 
we leave out that to which God has called us. We are too many Marthas and too few Marys. We are deeply entrenched in the doing and we miss the being. We're programmed and informed and planned and busy and we slight worship. We have our functionaries, our promotions, our objectives, our success-driven, numbers-conscious, traditionalistic, even faddish efforts, but too often acceptable, true spiritual worship eludes us. Years ago, A.W. Tozer called called worship the missing jewel of the church. And if he were still with us today, I'm sure that he would say the same without question. 350,000 churches in America own $8 billion worth of facilities dedicated to the worship of God. But how much worship takes place? Dr. MacArthur has certainly not been alone, even in the mainstream of American evangelicalism, to ask the very same question. Warren Wearsby noted several years ago that, quote, this is an age of religious activism. We greatly concern ourselves over what our churches are doing rather than what our churches are. Most Christians are too busy to worship, and many church services are so filled with man-made promotion that God is almost forgotten. People go to church to be spectators at a religious program, not participants in spiritual worship. They spend their time counting, but not weighing. As long as there are results, who cares whether or not God was pleased as his people gather to offer him spiritual worship. Multitudes of Christian workers, including pastors, wear themselves out on the weekly religious treadmill, gradually growing weary of soul and all the while wondering what is wrong with their spiritual lives. The end is collapse, spiritually, physically, and Emotionally, the missing ingredient is worship, ascribing to God worth and not using God to produce the results we have already planned. End quote. Now, if these two Christian theologians and these others who agree with their assessment of the modern situation in the church are even half correct, and I think, frankly, they're right on the mark, but even if they're only partly accurate in diagnosing the malady of modern evangelicalism, then the cure must certainly be found in the scripture in passages just like this one before us this morning. Where is the priority of God's people to be placed? When you take a remnant of Christians 
and strip them, strip from them everything that they have and put them in a desolate place, when they're thinking rightly, where do they begin? What's the first thing? Well, look no further. We just read it a few moments ago. They begin with worship. Look at these believers living self-consciously before the face of God. Once restored to the land, putting first things first, where do they begin? I will tell you where Christians begin today, where they set their priorities with some sadness. It's not difficult at all to demonstrate in our modern mobile society what Christians today, by and large, put in first place. When moving from one community to another, I dare say that most Christians begin with the job. Will I be able to find a good job where I am moving? And then they move with the next priority being the school system. Will my children get a good education? How do the schools rate? What district will I be living in? And then third, the neighborhood. Are the stores convenient? How many miles to the local Walmart? And then, often after they have moved to that place that holds that wonderful job, the great neighborhood, the reputable school, and the most direct route to Wally World, then they start looking for a church. Now, where did they learn this order of priorities? The answer is very simple. They learned it from the church. They learned to put worship at the bottom of the list, because the church has put worship on the bottom of the list. The baby is smothered, and there's not the sound of crying to be heard in the guest's ears. A radically different the scripture. Worship is always first in the Bible. The worship of God's people is always at the top of the list. Go back all the way to the beginning. From before man was even created, before the earth was formed, there was worship. I'm assuming, obviously, that the angels were created before men here. Later, the Lord willing, we'll read it together in Nehemiah. The heavenly host bows down before thee. That's what the angels do now, and it's what they've been doing since the day they were created. Adam and Eve in the garden from the very beginning, they worshiped God, they walked with him, they talked with the Lord, they obeyed him perfectly. Only sin could break the pure worship. And as soon as it did, and as soon as they did, they ceased worshiping God and came under the curse. And then the whole debacle with Cain and Abel, the very first murder in human history. Where did that conflict begin? It was the earliest of the worship wars. Some of you uh, might think that a reason to stop worshiping altogether, but that isn't the point, of course. The point is that worship has been, from the very beginning, the center of the life of the church and of her members. 
Noah and his family are saved from destruction, and God brings the ark to rest on the mountains of Ararat. They come out of the ark. What's the first thing they do? They worship God. Abraham comes into the promised land, and what does he do? First thing, he worships God. In fact, as the record of Scripture indicates, the passage of time only served to make the point all the clearer. God saves his people. But why? Why does he save us? Why has he saved you? To worship. He saves us to worship. God takes his people out of Egypt. The exodus that serves in scripture is the great picture of our own redemption and salvation. He takes them into the wilderness. And what does he teach them? Right off, first thing, does he go to pains to teach them how to be an army, how to march, how to wield their weapons? Does he lead them through the finer points of establishing an outreach program? No. First thing, God teaches them in great and exhaustive detail. He teaches them to worship and how to worship. And then when they're about to enter the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Moses instructs them, first thing, when you've settled in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, take some of the first fruits of all your produce from the soil of the land, put them in a basket, go to the place the Lord your God will choose, set your baskets before the Lord your God, and worship him. Now, in this morning's passage, the people of God return from another captivity, not from Egypt, obviously, but from Babylon. And the priority is the same. First thing, come together and worship. The same pattern continues all through the Bible. Christians, you and I have been saved for this purpose, to worship him, says the Apostle Peter in his first epistle, chapter 2, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And again, he says later, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In other words, we're saved today for the very same reason that God has always saved his people. Whether out of the flood or out of the heathen land, out of Egypt, out of Babylon, out of sin, out of his own wrath against our sin, we're saved to worship. We are saved to worship God. Yes, I hear what you're thinking. We must evangelize. And we must. We must tell the world about the good news of Jesus and proclaim that gospel far and wide. We must adorn that gospel with holy lives and obedience and service to others, loving our enemies, supplying our thirsty enemies drink, our hungry neighbors food. But why? Why? To what end? For what purpose? For this purpose. That they too will worship. 
That's why we evangelize. Jesus himself summarized in his conversation with the woman at the well this way. He said, the Father seeks worshipers. He's saving people to bring them to worship him. John Piper famously put it this way. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. Now this scriptural emphasis on worship at almost every turn in the Bible, including the passage before us, has been for most Christians not a problem. In fact, we've grown accustomed to it and even for that reason might be tempted to think very little of it. But uh, it was not so for the formerly atheistic C.S. Lewis upon noticing this ubiquitous scriptural emphasis on worship. Is God vain? He had to ask. Did he save us because he wanted to have some people around him always singing his praises? That seemed to him somehow unworthy of God. Somehow below him. We despise people who are always seeking praise. And we despise even more the people who know what the first party wants and gives it to them. It was a stumbling block for Lewis to notice that so often in the Psalms, especially, that God seems to demand worship from his people. Even at times to require it as a condition of his blessing upon them, as in Psalm 50, verse 23. He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me, and he prepares the way so that I may show him the way of salvation. Sometimes it's turned the other way around in the The psalm writer seems to be saying that if God will do this or that for him, then he will give him praise in return, as in Psalm 54. Save me, O God, and I will sacrifice a freewill offering to you. I will praise your name, O Lord. But Lewis eventually came to see and understand that it is right for men to praise God, for he is truly praiseworthy and admirable and deserving of all our worship. He came to understand that God certainly did not need our praises or crave our worship in some selfish or vain way. The scripture makes that perfectly clear. You know that. As God himself tells his people who imagine that they might ingratiate themselves to him by such praises, God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. But in particular, Lewis's problem with this concentration on the obligation of worshiping God dissolved when he noticed that the 
the world itself rings with praise to God. That praise and, and worship is really but the overflow of enjoyment, the overflow of appreciation. People praise their lovers. They praise their sports heroes. They praise their favorite authors. They praise actors and movies and plays and books and food and weather. They even praise politicians. Why, he thought, should he deny to God's people in regard to what is supremely wonderful and valuable that they and all other men delight to do above everything else that they value and prize? And he said, he further noticed that the crankiest and most small-minded people were the people who also praised the least. And the most balanced, happy, large-hearted people praised the most. Indeed, he thought praise, when you think about it, is only inner health made audible. Lewis concluded with this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is appointed consummation. Well, that may go a long way toward explaining why it is that the people of God restored here to the land made worship their first priority. It could well be that they understood that they would best enjoy God by worshiping him, by glorifying God in worship together. Or could it be something even simpler than that? Could it not be quite simply that they loved God. They loved God. And the best way for them to show that love was to come together and worship him. That, it seems to me, would have been enough for them. It ought certainly to be enough for us. My brothers and sisters, God has rescued us from sin from death. What can we do? What must we do? Who has saved us as he had saved them? What must they do? What could they do? What was the best thing they could possibly do? But worship him. I say, God has rescued us from the hands of our foes like he did our fathers and mothers in the faith. He's rescued you from death. He's rescued you from hell. He has rescued you from all that you so richly deserve and daily. God has saved us and loving him who has so extravagantly loved us so as not to withhold from us even his own son. What can we do? What else could we possibly want to do more than to gather together with the saints in his sanctuary 
and worship him. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Amen.